Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian, your soon-to-be short-haired host, joined again by Anthony McDaniels. We've got another episode today of the Wacky World of Energy. If you're new, this is more of a fireside chat, freeform discussion, where we look at some of the headlines and do a little bit of our own extrapolation. In this segment, we really like to think for ourselves and encourage you to do the same. So don't take our word for it. All of the articles we discuss will be down in the description below. We encourage you to form your own conclusions. And hey, if you'd like to, reach out and share them with us. You can email us at podcast at rarepetro.com for anything you might have. But as far as the content goes, we start in the international sector with a story regarding France. Now, a little bit of background. They've got a rich history of social revolt. And the latest we have is the French parliament has been talking about raising the retirement from 62 years old to 64 years old, essentially just bumping that age up two years. Now, the protests have spread to rather important industry, energy, and people in LNG terminals are starting to revolt. So we've got this article here from oilprice.com published on March 13th. We are recording March 13th titled strikes that shut down French LNG terminals are expected to continue right at the top. The strikes in France against the labor market reform have shut down the LNG import terminals and the impact will continue to be felt this week. Now, Anthony, you originally sent this to me over Twitter and I know you've been reading into it a little bit. What are your thoughts on the subject? So our ability to transport LNG over the Atlantic and the trade routes is going to be impacted by export capacity of the terminals, the tankers themselves, and import capacity. So having these kinds of strikes certainly doesn't help in trying to keep that LNG flowing, right? Um, at the end of the day, even though France is having protests about their pension systems, upping the age a couple of years, I think at a deeper level what it comes down to is people are just tired of their government screwing stuff up, <laughs> lying to them, telling them one thing, and then moving the goalposts. And oh yeah, and uh, you know, so what do they do? They they just shut down infrastructure. Um, there's lots of protests in in Denmark as well over the farmers not wanting to deal with the uh, the the new um, fertilizer requirements for you know the environmental agenda mm -hmm. and all that special stuff that comes out of these idiots mouths um so really what it all comes down to is people's their their entire economy like every modern economy is driven by energy and with everything that happened over the last couple of years with covid and then last year with the russian invasion of ukraine energy prices going up people are getting hit especially in europe they're getting hit by all kinds of size you know they're getting hit by food inflation they're getting hit by energy inflation way harder than we are here and then on to top it all off, <laughs> French government comes out and says, hey, we're gonna, well, we, I know you thought you could retire at 62, but now it's going to be later. People <laughs> just snap, right? Yep. And, and the thing of it is, I don't know what calms it all down. Um, I really don't. Uh, I do know that uh, there's going to be a lot of, uh, this is an example of a fundamental volatility in the energy markets where you have a demand for Europe to bring in more LNG, but then you have volatility because of uh, civil unrest, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's going to kind of shut down some of that import capacity that they have, you know, they'll probably get it back on. It's not going to be like turning on a, a light though. You know, you got to get people, you're going to have to negotiate with the unions over there. You're going to have to 
calm everybody down and do this and do that. And hopefully they get back going. I mean, they're going to need the LNG, but as far as they're concerned, government lied to me. That's what they think. And I can't, I guess I can't speak for a French citizen, but if you put it all together, <laughs> seems to me that that's generally what people's feeling is. Right. Um, so Something we can be sympathetic so about we, internationally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the halted operations at the French LNG import terminals sent the European benchmark gas price up 25% over Thursday and Friday of last week, also due to a cold snap in North e Northwest Europe and renewed concerns about France's nuclear power fleet availability, which is struggling. Um, on Monday, prices were down in Amsterdam trade due to higher wind generation. Um, yeah, that's great. Uh, talk about volatility and energy prices. <laughs> oh, the wind's blowing. Energy price down. Oh, the wind's not blowing. Oh, energy price. <laughs> <laughs> Got to pin it on something. I, yeah. for one, I'm excited to see how this progresses because even in this article, it says, despite the strikes and protests, the French Senate voted in favor of the proposed reform. So makes you wonder, are they just going to go, well, we tried or will they double down and is energy just going yeah. to get, I mean, again, are we going to see new all-time highs for European energy? It's quite possible because this is uh, not an insignificant trade hub. Well, yeah, and it's not just LNG. I mean, they're talking about in this article, the strikes across France have disrupted the power supplies, refining operations, fuel deliveries for more than a week of strikes and street protests against pension reform. So um, despite these strikes and protests this weekend, the French Senate voted in favor of the proposed reform that everybody's <laughs> all mad about. Yep. <laughs> the bill has yet to clear other hurdles and they have their own processes. Um, the disruption at France LNG terminals is expected to last beyond March 14th, a union official told Reuters today. All the gas terminals and storages are in the hands of the strikers. Terminals are shut down. There is decline in storage. France has four LNG receiving terminals. I don't want to try and say those because I'm going <laughs> to botch the names. Um, and basically... It looks three of the four. Yep, three out of their four import terminals have been offline since March 6th. Yeah, over a week now. Yeah, yeah. Last week, deliveries to Europe and Turkey fell by nearly 19%, hmm. according to ship tracking data. So, yeah, um, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Some, I mean, either the the French will will get their the citizens will get their way, or the government's going to become have to become more um, probably almost violent against their citizens. Um, mm -hmm. I saw some stuff on social media about uh, street protests it, and the police. Yeah, they were they were charging people. Oh with, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a powder keg over there, you know, and I'm sure. I'm sure it's just not going to get better in the next, like, immediate future because it sounds right. like their government's just moving ahead. Um, at some point, something's got to change. You can't keep those terminals offline for strikers. No. And at some point, they could end up sending the military in if they had to just to get those facilities running. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Especially but, the people uh, who are downline even. I mean, this yeah. affects more than just France. Yeah. So how about we switch it over to our next article here on the uh, on the international front. What do we got next, Tavis? 
Well, even though this may not be resolved soon on the French side, we've got a problem that, well, it looks like we could have some new relationships blossoming nearby. This is an article from CNBC published on last Friday, which I believe was the 10th. Yes, the 10th. Titled, Arch Rivals Iran and Saudi Arabia Agreed to Revive Ties, Reopen Embassies in a China Brokered Deal. Bullets right mm. at the top of the article. Regional foes Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to resume diplomatic relations and reopen embassies in each other's countries, both governments announced. This development follows China-led negotiations in Beijing. In addition to resuming diplomatic relations and reopening their embassies and missions in each other's countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to affirm, quote, the respect for the sovereignty of states and the non-interference in international affairs of states, end quote. Now, Anthony, for those of us out there who may not be as well-read on the history of international relations, what has it been like, this broken, tumultuous relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the past? Well... Now, I'm not going to be that much of a geopolitical buff myself, but just to give the overarching context, as I understand it. You see, when Saddam Hussein was taken out and Iraq was taken down, um, Iran and Tehran filled the, the power void in the Middle Eastern clusters over there. Mm -hmm. They've become the new military aggressor type country, you know, they're trying to really get nuclear grade uranium. Um, they're trying to get all these things going where they, they, if they want to, they want to, you know, blow somebody else up, they can. <laughs> um, now, given that Saudi Arabia has been an ally of the United States for decades and decades and decades, in exchange for, you know, we provide military support for Saudi and um, they trade, you know, they, they, they mark things in U.S. dollars, things being their oil exports. <laughs> um, you see, I'll tell you one thing. Iran is no big fan of the United States. That's not a secret. Um, they can't stand the West at all. Um, they hate the United States probably second to North Korea. I mean, <laughs> I, they just don't like this country. Well, I can tell you that was in the United States' interest to have Saudi and Iran kind of at each other's throats. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of circumstantial history and things that are even written about where, you know, we were kind of supporting in the background some of these skirmishes that they have around them. So to have Beijing come in and essentially broker a peace deal, if you will, um, kind of turns that whole strategy on its head for the United States. Their foothold in the Middle East is, is largely Saudi Arabia now. Um, so... The biggest thing you were doing was, was you had Iran at Saudi Arabia's throat and vice versa. And the United States tactic was, you know, we'll just keep saying, we don't like you, Iran, either. And uh, we're just going to continue to supply military, military arms to, to you, Saudi, so you can protect yourselves. And now, now comes in Beijing and says, well, so you guys trying to just 
shoot at each other all the time. Why don't you just be friends? Because because I'd like to be friends with both of you, and I'm I'm big old China. So why don't you just be friends with each other, and then we can all be friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is pretty impactful, right? So now what you've got a couple of weeks ago, you have Iraq coming out and saying that they will sell their oil in the yuan denominated gold-backed uh, oil contract out of Shanghai, okay? And now you've got Iran and Saudi getting along is actually really not so much in the interest of the United States. Mm-hmm. It's more in the interest of China. China wants to probably keep Middle Eastern tensions at a minimum so that they have stability out of that region is going to provide them a lot of power. It's also going to provide a lot of the throughputs and right-of-ways and so on of Russian vessels that are leaving through the Black Sea and going through all those canals and all this over there to go around India and over to Asia. So, you know, this is a big deal, you know, and peace is a good thing, but everybody should understand that uh, if you looked at the history of how the United States has dealt with these countries, it doesn't seem as if, you know, if there's a tension, a military tension between the Middle Eastern countries, then all you got to do is supply one or two of those countries with your arms and your armaments, and then they feel like they need you. And if they feel like they need you, they'll do the things that you want them to do, like, hey, release more oil, drop the oil price, because we want you to do it. Hey, don't deal with those Russians or these people because they're doing these things because we don't want you to. So doing this kind of thing, this is a, this is a chess move is what this is. Mm-hmm. Beijing very well knows that Middle Eastern tension has been at minimum status quo for the United States dealing with the Middle East for decades. And to some degree, even to the United States benefit, because it keeps them from working together as much as they could otherwise. But if you end up with a situation where Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq are all in lockstep, everybody else in the Middle East are going to go along. Mm-hmm. And not only just the Middle East. I mean, I like how you mentioned the chess aspect. This is strategic. It's not only Saudi Arabia and Iran. We've seen relationships blossom, especially in energy between Russia and India. I mean, this isn't China just yeah. doing this for peace. This is a strategic laying of social engineering and groundwork to establish relationships to eventually say, hey, remember how the United States sanctioned all of us, said we couldn't develop nuclear arms? What if we kept them out of the equation? And that's sort of where I see this leading, and that ties into the petrodollar conversation we've been having on this network for years now. Yep. Yep. I mean, in this article here, I'm just going to pick some pieces out of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But um, Iranian state media publishes images of their Supreme National Security Council secretary with the National Security Advisor to... MBS um, and the top Chinese diplomat. So, you know, in addition to resuming diplomatic relations and reopening their embassies, they're going to be reopening their embassies in each other's countries and missions in each other's countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to affirm, quote, the respect of sovereignty of states and non-interference in internal affairs of states. And see, that's another... That's another real key thing here. And this is this is what China is really playing on. It plays to their angle and it plays to a lot of the desires and needs and wants in all of these other countries. Basically, hey, Iran, if you want to do this with your country and your citizens, that's you, man. You do you. 
Saudi, same thing. Okay. Russia, you know what, as far as we are concerned, we kind of consider that Ukraine was basically part of Russia the way we consider Tehran was part of China, right? Once they frame it up as you do what you need to do for, for your country, even if that's over current borderlines, but in their mind, it's, well, Taiwan is part of China, you know, and certainly Eastern Ukraine was part of Russia before. And that's what they're saying. So it's kind of like, you do what you need to do as a country. Well, the United States comes in and takes the opposite approach. No, you don't do what you think you need to do as a country. You do what we tell you you need to do as a country. And um, people are getting tired of that. And now you have a, a much, much larger adversary on the geopolitical stage, like China, adversary to the United States, coming and basically telling everybody, if you want to run your country like this, you run your country like that. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, we're going to invest in you. We want to build stuff. We don't buy stuff from you, and then we want to build stuff. So if you think of these countries like individuals, and you got somebody else, the big kid on the playground, is going around and saying, no, you can't do that. You can't wear that. You can't talk like that. And if, and, and if that other person over there tries to get you to do it, you need to fight them, and we'll help you fight them. Now you got this other big kid on the playground coming to say, hey, if you want to talk like that, do like that, this like that, and that's you, you do you, man. And that other kid that was messing with you, I'm going to go tell him the same thing because I'm bigger than him. And he won't mess with you anymore. Oh, on top of that, oh, you like that backpack? Oh, you like that belt? How about I buy one from you? If you just give me something every now and then that you have available that I need. Now, if you think, if you just boil down all this supreme geopolitic complex web crap to that simple analogy... It becomes real easy to understand the dynamic. And that's why this whole thing, this threat to the petrodollar system, this is a real thing, guys. I've heard people have been around this industry for a long, long time, and they're like, ah, you know, I'm not going to happen. China is not what China used to be, guys. You have a block of nations that are now realizing that they can do their own trade. The United States... You know what? If you want to do you, U.S., you do you. But you're not going to come over here and tell us how to do us. Okay? That's a real thing. And and as while it may not be explicit in an article headline about, oh, Iran and Saudi are to get along now because China's brokering peace. That's part of this whole thing. Okay? And that needs to be understood very, very well. Because we are just any moment away from the whole Middle Eastern block and OPEC as a block saying... We'll all sell oil in yuan-based contract if it's going to China. <laughs> and once that happens, the United States economic sanctions influence and all this other stuff, it just withers away. And once that happens, anything that we have to import, including energy products, can get very expensive in our currency very quickly. So these things are worth watching, and that's why we really wanted to spend some time on this during this, this month's wacky world. Um, so the White House did come out and say that they supported efforts to de-escalate tensions, because what are they going to say? No, you should be killing each other. They're not going to say that. <laughs> Obviously, so if anybody's like, well, I mean, maybe the U.S. will be happy. We don't have to send troops over there. And they, yeah, that's all true, except for... One of the reasons that Saudi really listens to us is because we give them military support in weapons and training.
And if they feel that they don't need that as much, well, guess what? Our influence over them drops, doesn't it? So what they officially say here, what do we got? Uh, National Security Council spokesperson John Kermody told CNBC during a press call, we support any effort to de-escalate tensions in the region. We think it's in our interest and it's something that we worked on through our own effective combination of deterrence and diplomacy. Effective, okay. my eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing such a great job. No, you're not. Uh, Kirby added, it really does remain to be seen if Iran is going to meet their obligations. He, meanwhile, appeared to downplay China's role in the deal. This is not about China, and I'm not going to characterize here whatever China's role is. It appears to us that this roadmap announced today will result in multiple rounds of talks. So he just, he kind of shot a dagger there in part of that when he said, it really does remain to be seen if Iran is going to meet their obligations. Yeah, well, he's referring to their obligations to the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, he might be trying to tell the, te- the press that if they'll stay to the obligations and staying peaceful with Saudi. But... I just, one of the big frictions, whether it's explicitly said or not, is that Saudi, in the eyes of Iran, has been a lapdog for the United States for decades, and they're tired of it. So what a great excuse to go and, you know, mess with each other than that way. Well, if that gets taken out, to be honest with you, Iran's probably going to hold to those, at least for a while. All it takes is a couple of years, everybody, and the whole dynamic shifts considerably. So, yeah, I think with that, you know, I think we can kind of, oh, I'll leave it off after this last bit. Uh, Michael Stevens, an associate fellow at London's Royal United Services Institute, agreed, this is a serious moment in which the region itself and two biggest powers in the region acknowledged the influence, the diplomatic pressure, and the leverage of Beijing as their key arbiter in the region. He said, noting that this is the first such instance for China as mediator in the Middle East. He goes on to say, now that doesn't mean that the U.S. is losing influence, he said, pointing to the fact that the U.S. still has a far bigger military footprint than China in the region, and its relationship with Israel is much stronger than Beijing's. That is all well understood, and nobody is challenging the power of the U.S. and what it could do, he said. What they are challenging is that the Noah, is that the U.S. is leading, and that and it's the only game in town. Seems That's a little a not... background analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean that the U.S. is losing its influence because it has a bigger military footprint in the region. What did we just talk about? They won't need as big of a military footprint if they feel there's less concern. Precisely. Uh, they, yeah. And Israel? Yes, Israel is our ally. And they're going to be our ally probably way beyond this. And all these things that going to happen. Israel doesn't export oil, guys. This is all about energy. So, great. I, I love Israel. There's nothing wrong with Israel. But I'm telling you, this isn't about... The Middle East, it's about Middle Eastern energy. Period. Full stop. It doesn't matter if we have influence in Israel. 
if we don't have influence in the rest of them? Well, we have influence because of our military footprint. What you mean? All that stuff we're going to have to redeploy if something blows up in the Pacific? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? The presence that we pulled out of Afghanistan? I mean, the military presence isn't exactly what it used to be and not a huge barter chip, but... Yeah, so... We'll see what happens. These guys can sit there and talk all they want about, oh, it, you know, it's nothing to the U.S. It's, ah, we're fine. Well, we are fine, but this does change some things. Now, once people look at another country, once countries look at another country as a peace bringer, an actual peace bringer, not just, hey, let's load you up with a bunch of ammunition and go out there and you fight, but an actual peace bringer, that's a very alluring thing. Well, with that, I think we can move it along to our last international article, this one from CNBC, published on the 3rd. So a little bit older, but still pretty important. We've got some global commentary. Persistent underinvestment in the oil sector will keep global supply tight, Aramco CEO says. Key points being larger than expected U.S. fuel stocks in recent months and expectations of a weaker global growth. I don't know why those have been made, but have helped lower energy prices. Second bullet, but as drilling activity slows in response, that decreased production will threaten supplies in the future, according to CEO of Saudi Aramco, Amin Nassar. And that second bullet point, that's pretty important to me. I've been doing the Monday Madness podcast, and we always look at the rig count. And it seems for the past few months, we've kind of stagnated in a range of 740 to 760 rigs. Before that year-over-year -year count, oh, 230 more rigs than we had in 2020. 220 rigs, a, a just huge growth because we had such an insane collapse. But now we're seeing only 83 more rigs than we had this time last year, and that number continues to decline. So I don't know if that means we're in a healthy spot for the rig count, but... U.S. production is certainly not where I would expect it to be given global commodity and supply. Yeah, no, basically the real crux here is this part, getting in the article a little bit. Um, what the Aramco CEO says here is, I think it's very difficult if you look at the spending on the sector. It's around 370 to 400 billion, and that's globally currently in the upstream side compared to 2014 where it was 700 billion <laughs> so global capex spending is approximately half of what it was in 2014 now one could say well yeah but the wells we drill now are worth they bring a lot more oil in this is true but one could also say that the price to drill has gone up significantly in the last year or two because of shortage of materials shortage of labor, all these things. Guess what? I would say, if you really looked at it high level, the productivity increase gains we've got from the wells are largely offset by the price increases of drilling and, and the time it takes to get everything done. Absolutely. And so essentially, what he's saying is, in a nutshell, guys, we're spending about half on this sector globally is what we were doing about 10 years ago. Don't know if that's going to be enough to keep up with demand. And he's probably right. Now, how long this takes to show up in oil prices and inventories, I don't know. Um, what we were talking about at the beginning of this segment with the French protests and things generally, a basket case in Europe is a basket case over there. 
these things do tamp energy demand for a while because all these factories aren't running, all these processes aren't running, all these things aren't running, okay? But at some point, especially if war expands, it's going to be a very energy-intensive situation. I mean, basically, all the energy is going to go to China trying to build their military, if you're keeping track of that. You know, they've gone very military-oriented in their last Congress um, placement here, and they have a huge import quota. It takes a lot of energy to build stuff. It takes a lot of energy, too, to build up a machine of war. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Mm. And that's on the worst case scenario side. Even at the bottom, he says, there is a need for investment. Policymakers and regulators and investors need to ensure that there's adequate available investment in this sector. But if we look at the current climate, policymakers and regulators seem to be going against this, even suggesting as much as windfall taxes for these companies that, well, like our president said, made more money than God last year. And the investors, yeah, yeah, yeah. we see a lot of activist investors pushing away who want to see more investment into what they would consider greener forms of energy. So, again, this might not hurt in the short term, but things are looking a little bit less than ideal three, four, five years out from now on the supply side. Yeah. And people can talk about this green stuff all they want. Just ask Silicon Valley Bank how that worked out for them. <laughs> I'm sick of it. These people are idiots. All right, moving on to the next article. Domestic news. Senator Manchin threatens to block Biden nominees over IRA energy provisions. And this was posted on March 10th from oilprice.com. And Anthony, I'm going to have to turn this one over to you. This is the first I've heard about it today. And I'm not even sure about this uh, infrastructure bill and energy provisions involved. Well, it's not a long one, so we're going to read good chunks of it. So Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on Friday, and this is the Friday before our recording, so I think Friday, March 10th, we're recording on Monday, March 13th. Um, so he threatened to uh, hold up more of Joe Biden's nominees if the administration doesn't stick to the energy lane cart forward by the Inflation, Reductin Act, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. Um, in a Houston Chronicle opinion piece on Friday, Senator Manchin said that the administration would stick with implementing the IRA that was passed, not the law they wanted, but did not get. <laughs> Manchin added that if they choose to continue down this path, there will be consequences now and then in the future. Manchin said he was no longer support Biden nominee for Assistant Interior Secretary for Land and Minerals Management. Um, Laura Daniel Davis has been waiting for confirmation since mid-2021. Republicans view Daniel Davis as decidedly anti-fossil fuels. Her chances of being confirmed now without Manchin's support have been labeled by some as less than zero. Manchin had previously referred to Daniel Davis as an incredibly well-qualified voting for her in his role as chair of the Energy and Resources Committee. Daniel Davis currently serves as a principal deputy assistant to Secretary Land and Minerals Management, but Manchin has become disgruntled with the Biden's administration's handling of the Alaskan energy affairs. After last Friday, an internal memo was accidentally posted, <laughs> accidentally posted on the BOEM website that rejected cutting the royalty rates for oil and gas development in Alaska by the minimum amount established by the Inflation Reduction Act. 
even though the BOEM's own research discovered that a discount can spark more drilling, increasing Alaska's revenues and quenching a fuel storage in, uh, fuel shortage in Anchorage. The memo shows that Daniel Davis signing off in November on the recommendation for higher royalty rates just one month before the federal oil and gas lease sale for Alaskans Cooks Inlet. The lease sale drew just one bid for a single <laughs> I bet you it was a good bid. Yeah, it's basically like, hey, you know what? We'll do this Inflation Reduction Act, as I imagine saying, but we need to still continue to use our conventional energy sources and look for them, coal, oil, gas, these things. And he was under the impression that they would do a lease sale in Alaska, the Cook Inlet. And basically what they did is, yeah, we'll do a lease sale. They just had this high royalty rate, so they knew nobody would be interested. One party was interested in one lease. But mm -hmm. It basically defeats the whole purpose. Yep. Yeah, you know, we'll put the car on the lot for sale, but let's jack up the price so, like, nobody wants to do it. And if anybody does, you know, they, you know they'll get a piece. They won't get the whole thing. Such a joke. Such a joke. I mean, that's been the ultimate conclusion once we review domestic energy policy as of late, but yeah, yeah. joke indeed. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of tension and turmoil within Washington, D.C. too, about all this stuff. Everybody gets all wrapped up about what we have to do for the climate. And I just find that to be just a bunch of crap. It has nothing to do with the climate. Absolutely zero to do with the climate. They don't care. All they care about is doing their agendas because it lines their pockets. I've come to the point in my career, in my life, that's all I see, and that's all that I, that's it. Draw your own freaking conclusion. But if you look at the track record of these idiots flying on their private jets everywhere, like Carrie, the, the climate envoy, taking a private jet everywhere, you know, all these climate global leaders taking jets, having mansions, living on the freaking beach, and telling you, Watch your carbon footprint. <laughs> Be worried about rising sea levels. Bullshit. Yeah. As if you and I are the problem and not yeah. consuming these mass quantities yeah. of resources. I think it's a bunch of elitist idiots mm -hmm. that think we're bigger idiots than they are. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to talk, start talking more about this. Talk about, we'll move to the next article. I'll kick this one off. Another absolute <laughs> mental... Um, Energy Secretary Granholm claims the U.S. can learn from what China is doing on climate change. Wow. You know, she reminds me of the girl who isn't a girl. She's kind of almost like an adult. Mm -hmm. And she goes to the, the, the circus and she sees this trick and she goes, oh my God, that's so amazing. You're an idiot. Like, you, you, that should intrigue you if you're five, mm -hmm. not if you're 15. Are you, are you, is there some mental dysfunction in your head? She thinks that China is doing all these great things on climate change. No, you idiot. What they're doing on climate change is they're selling you battery packed solar panels and wind turbines. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing on climate change. Are they opening more wind, solar, and all these things in China? Well, of course they are because they're building it. So I'll just put it up here. Let's put it up there. They don't care about private property. It doesn't freaking exist over there. Do you know what else they're doing? Opening a crap load of coal fire plants. Exactly. So, <laughs> she, this is just, she's an idiot. 
Mm-hmm. She's an idiot. Most of the people in administration are idiots. They're all a joke. They don't. She doesn't even know how much oil we produce every day in this country or use. Yeah, she was asked like in an interview, Energy right? secretary. <laughs> energy secretary. Totally unqualified. Mm-hmm. Totally unqualified. Absolute moron. She praised China for being very sensitive to world climate needs, investing in clean energy. Ah, investing. They're yeah. also investing in coal-fired plants, you moron. And that, that was what God. confused me the most. Her quote of, I think China's done, has been very sensitive and has actually invested a lot in their solutions to achieve climate goals. Well, outside of the industrial benefits and economic benefits we talked about, about selling it to the rest of the world, as far as I can see, they've penned their name down some places. They've said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get there by 2050. But I do not see a lot of effort <laughs> going into actually yeah. transitioning away from cheap, abundant energy, which they spent the last three years hoarding. Yeah, of course she's. Uh, of course, the she's claiming their country is more sensitive to the issue, more so than the U.S. Well, because they want to sell us battery packs and solar panels. Mm-hmm. Here's some numbers for you. According to the U.S. Energy Administration Information Administration, fifty-five percent of China's energy now comes from coal, compared to eleven percent in the U.S. China also just coal, just coal. The United States is the only developed country that has meaningfully reduced its carbon emissions. Why? Because we shifted from coal to natural gas. Why? Because we had the freedom for exploration and development of said resources. Period. Full stop. End of story. Climate sensitive. Climate sensitive. You idiot. Have you seen photos and videos of the sewage that comes out of the chemical refining processes to make these motors for the electric cars, to make these lithium-ion battery packs, to make those pedestals and these other things for the wind turbines, it's an ecological disaster. No, but Absolute. <laughs> it, it, it's just a joke. And she says they're more sensitive. Well, yeah, because they want us to buy their crap. Because mm-hmm, they make Duh. money off of sensitivity. I mean, these people are freaking idiots. Mm-hmm. China's over there like, guys, you should really care about your Green New Deal, you know? You should really want more solar and wind, you know? Yeah, you should. I mean, China isn't even holding themselves to the Paris Accord. Come on. Yeah. Maybe she's maybe she's thinking that she'll have a place in case, you know, she needs to flee <laughs> to China or something. Maybe we should investigate her as being an agent of the Chinese Communist Party. For saying that they're so sensitive. Sensitive? They're just opening a new coal plant like every other week. Selling us a bunch of crap that has no emissions. But don't worry about all this sewage that we just put into the environment to make these things. Just a freaking joke. Yeah, but hey, again, that's why we record these segments. We love doing the wacky world because... A lot of the people information get is just from gleaning a headline and looking at the surface level and thinking, oh, well, China, they're environmentally sensitive because they like solar panels and not thinking, oh, it's because they sell the solar panels to every other developed country with aggressive climate goals. We encourage you to look into those articles we've linked because, I mean, there's there's lots of news out there. We even publish it to Rare Petro, not only our own stuff, but some of our favorite sources. We encourage you to check those out. Anything else you want to say before we close this out, Anthony? Because really, you got to think for yourselves, folks. 
Yeah, no, I think that's enough. That's enough uh, ranting for this month. <laughs> ranting indeed. Well, if you enjoyed it, be sure to frack that follow button. We've got lots of other content coming out. If it's not the Wacky World, Monday Madness. We're actually recording this on a Monday. I'll be putting out an episode later regarding some more, well, we'll say based in statistics and numbers, some information there and current events, especially in the United States. Otherwise, we got the Thirsty Thursday periodical looking at domestic supply plenty of great content encourage you to go to www.rarepetro.com to check it out but this has been tavis killian and anthony mcdaniels with rare petro and until we see you next time take care everybody thanks tavis <laughs>